This is the place where we talk about preparing for and navigating adulthood, a space for autistic individuals, families, professionals, and other community stakeholders to get information and resources when it comes to this particular area. We talk about employment, education, high school, college, independence, all of those areas, and connect you to people and organizations that are doing work in this community, as well as share some resources that we've created here at Autism Grown Up. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Regan, and I'm also the executive director of Autism Grown Up. You can check us out at autismgrownup.com and continue listening to this episode. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Autism Grown Up podcast. Today, I'll be sharing my interview with Becca Lori Hector. Becca was diagnosed on the autism spectrum as an adult and since then has become a dynamic autism advocate, consultant, speaker, and author. And she has dual certifications as a certified autism specialist and a cognitive specialist. Her work has a focus on living an active, positive life and includes autism and neurodiversity consulting, public speaking, and a monthly blog called Live Positively Autistic, a weekly YouTube news show, Neurodiversity Newsstand. And she's also an assistant editor slash feature writer for Spectrum Woman magazine. We'll have links for these in our show notes for sure so you can check those out after listening to our interview. And today Becca and I discuss her path to self-determined decision making with starting with her ASD diagnosis as a jumping off point and how she has found it to be so critical that other autistics learn and practice the skill of self-determination. And in the latter half of the show we talk about her interest in quality of life, specifically that we start creating quality of life assessments and measurements with autistic measures because quality of life is typically created and focused on the neurotypical person. So I found this conversation so fascinating and I just enjoyed our time together and I hope you all too. Let's jump into our conversation. Hey, Becca, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you and your work in the autism community? Sure. Um, I am an adult autistic myself. I was diagnosed about eight years ago when I was 36. That was after a long lifetime of a lot of struggles that nobody could really place, and autism made it all make sense. So after I sort of spent the first year really working on myself, doing really intensive therapy and developing my diagnosis and figuring out how to articulate my needs and all of that fun stuff. Um, I felt it was really important to give back to the community. I wanted to give back to the organizations who helped me when I needed help. Um, so I went back to the organization that gave me my diagnos- diagnostician and I said, I'd like to volunteer. So uh, I volunteered for about two weeks and then they said, we'd like to hire you. Oh, <laughs> um, and that's cool. sort of how I began my autism career, right? It was just, it just happened that way. And I tell that a lot because that was the first time in my whole life that I had really followed my gut and my passion about what to do for work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because I had gotten my diagnosis. And so it turned out not only was it work, it became a career. And so I really just, not only did autism become my special interest, but I also felt really compelled to make sure that there wasn't another me, that not that another woman didn't live to 36 without this piece of information, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so I really wanted to get involved with that. So after about three years with nonprofit, I decided that I wanted to go out on my own because I was really tired of carrying a mission statement with me whenever I was speaking. 
uh, and I really had things I wanted to say and I didn't want to take an organization with me for that either. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went out on my own and I started doing consulting and mentoring, um, doing some speaking engagements and a lot of writing. And that's kind of what I do now. It's, it's been a few years doing this now. And I really, I, I like it because I've figured out what works for me in terms of work. And it's taken a really long time to figure that out. It's still difficult. I mean, I, I am um, still on social security. I'm still, you know, struggling financially in that way. Um, but at least I'm on a path I can stay on. I'm on, on a career that's sustainable for me. So that's, that's where I'm at. I love that you've um, individualized your work for you, like based on your special interest that you said is autism. I mean, I had to, it, it took a really long time to understand that about myself and just come to the, you know, I was an idealist for a really long time. So when I first started, I wanted employment to, to kind of get it that they needed to make some changes and kind of make those changes so that I could work. And then after a few years doing it, you know, you come kind of come to the realization that all that kind of change is really, really slow moving. And the reality was I really couldn't make a job for myself in the way that employment is set up now. Right. And yeah. it's not going to change in anytime soon. So I needed to figure out a way to make what's now and what's reality work for me. Um, mm -hmm. And so I had to kind of really um, like know myself enough to know what hours of the day I work best and what kind of jobs I like and, and how long, how many hours a day I can do stuff and that kind of thing and really do all of that before I could, before I was really able to develop what I have now. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've been hearing a similar story with other autistics who are becoming professionals in the field, which I am loving seeing because then there's more people to listen to when it comes to the neurodiversity autistic movement. You bring up such a great point about the workplace being kind of slow to make these changes and then feel, having to, that's such a tough decision I can imagine to have to go out on your own, but you feel so empowering at the same time. It does, it's also the scariest thing I've ever done. Um, yeah. and, you know, like people look at like where I'm at right now and I know where I'm at right now looks pretty great. It certainly does to me. There was a lot of blood, sweat and tears to get here. You know what I mean? Like there is work to get here. And so in a lot of ways, being able to do this was like the best gift that I could give myself. And what I hope it shows people is that you don't have to like what's out there doesn't have to be the end for you. You know, there's you have control and you have certain choices and you have enough power that you can make small changes and, and even and that turn into big changes in yeah. your own life. But it's, I think right now autistics aren't being given that freedom of choice in that way. There's a lot of people telling us what to do and how to do it and what's the right way to do things and what, you know, all of these things mean. And that's really dangerous for autistics because we're rule followers. So if you create a rule for us, you create a way that things are supposed to be, that's, we put our blinders on and that's what, what we're going for. Um, so when somebody says to us, you need to be working full time at a regular job, whatever that means, right? Um, yeah. And so that means Monday through Friday, nine to five, being in an office, autistics tend to get stuck looking for that, right? Like I'm yeah. supposed to have that because that's what the rule that somebody else told me. Instead of really learning about ourselves, um, and creating a quality of life for ourselves by pursuing what we want and what works for us, what's comfortable for us, what uses our strengths, um, what doesn't, you know, use up all of our energy, all of our spoons, you know, and we're not really teaching, especially, um, I think that our younger autistics now to, to really do that and that how 
choices exist out there and how to make a good choice. Mm -hmm. um, that's just not being taught because um, we're, we're not really, I don't think we're really validated in the fact that the things that we want need out of life are fair, are true, are real, whatever word you want to use. Yeah. Um, and so I think we have to get past that hump. Um, so for a while, autistics are going to have to like really fight for what they want. Agreed. Yeah. So how did you, I'm really curious then how you got to this realization for yourself of like, how did you, it's definitely a good amount of um, small steps to get there and having to learn how to trust yourself and those types of things. But could you share a little bit of insight along your process of like self-realization and thinking towards the autistic community at large and seeing that reflected in others too? I mean, I think, you know, there were kind of two catalysts in my life that happened that kind of pushed this to happen. Okay. Um, you know, some of it I was already on the journey to do. So like once I got my diagnosis and I was, and I had, admitted that I needed therapy and that I really needed to do it intensively, that there was going to be work involved. And so I, I kind of knew that part. Um, but my diagnosis was definitely my first catalyst. I think I was a really, I was really suicidal right before, you know, my diagnosis gave me this little flicker of hope that I had, hadn't seen in years, like decades. And so my diagnosis put me on a forked road. It was like, well, you're here, you, you have this diagnosis and you could say, oh, well, I'm disabled. I've been disabled my whole life and I'll be disabled for the rest of my life. So I give up, right? Mm -hmm. Or I could take that information and say, well, maybe this will help inform my decisions and make things different enough for me that I could maybe be happy, right? Yeah. Um, and then those were sort of the two choices. And I chose to go down the road of hope because I knew that if that didn't work, I could always go back to choice A and give up, right? So I, I kind of went down that path of like, let me see what's out there. Um, and that was the beginning of that catalyst, right? Because then in therapy, I was introduced to a lot of concepts that really made sense to me um, in a way that nothing before that had made sense. Because of course, if you're in therapy for the wrong diagnosis, nothing is going to make sense to you. True. So this is the first time I was in therapy for the right diagnosis, right? <laughs> and things started to work. Um, and so I was using a lot of mindfulness techniques. I was mixing CBT and DBT, which are two different therapy techniques. And I, I was just sort of on a journey to, to learn myself, to know myself, right? Yeah. Um, and that was the beginning, right? That was the first sort of catalyst to all of it um, was like, okay, I'm, I'm a, I have value. Holy crap, I have value, right? And now I can maybe do something about that. So that was the beginning. That was it. A couple of years after my diagnosis, so I was diagnosed in 2012. In 2015, my mother passed away, um, and she was my only person. I was an only child to a single mom, and that was it. Um, and so when my mom passed away, not only did I first have to be her caregiver, um, and our roles changed, but then um, I was really very much on my own. I was, you know, alone, like in the very, very alone sense, like that's it. And so that was my second catalyst because... I suddenly became very aware of the value of time mm -hmm. um, and how very little we actually have of it, how much of it we waste, and kind of just how you, you can't ever get it back. That's what I say when I speak. I talk about time as the non-renewable resource. It's the one resource that you have that once you give it away, in whatever way you give it away, you can't get it back. Yeah. It's gone. Um, yeah. And so I, I had this sudden understanding of that in a very real way. And I looked at the life that my mom had led and I looked at my life and I, there were things that she did that I didn't want to make those mistakes. There were lots of places she wanted to go and travel to. 
there were things she wanted to try and, and try to learn and all of that stuff. But, you know, she would do it someday, right? Everyone would do it someday when the time was right. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to make that mistake. You know, that was my wake up moment. Like, I can't make that mistake. I was given this diagnosis. It saved my life. And now I need to really do something with it. Like for me, not just for our community. And that's where I got to. I just decided and, in, in, you know, without those thoughts, you start to think about your boundaries. You know, where are people taking advantage of my time? Who am I giving it away to that I don't want to be giving it away to? Um, what don't I have time for because I'm giving it away, right? Mm-hmm. And, and all of those questions. And so that started that, that was the second catalyst of like, hold on. I really am the only one because suddenly that aloneness, I am genuinely the only one that can make changes in my life. Yeah. Um, the thing is that that's a truth for everybody, right? Every human being, you're the only one. And if you're not changing something, then you're choosing it, right? Is the idea. So I wanted to look at what I was choosing to spend my time on. And then I wanted to make other choices. I had for so many years, I think probably my entire life, wanted to move out of New York City. I was born and raised in New York City in the boroughs. It's loud, as you can all imagine. The sensory is overwhelming. And when you don't know that you are struggling with something that everyone else isn't struggling with necessarily, you put up with a lot of that stuff. So suddenly I had this choice, like, wait a second, I don't have to live here. I don't have to put up with that. I don't have to um, I was living in an apartment and I've always wanted a house with a backyard so I could have dogs. Well, what's keeping me from having that, right? Other than it was scary, it was financially daunting, all of, you know, it's a big sure. project for anybody. Yeah. But if I didn't start taking those first steps to do that, it's never going to happen. So I started taking those very first scary steps of little things. And I, I was making all kinds of choices about my time, my input, um, where I was spending my energy, doing what, with whom. And that I, I went through that whole process in my life and I made a lot of choices. And, and out of that, here I am a few years, you know, it's been since 2015. So here I am these five years later and I'm sitting in a house that I purchased, um, homeowner. I moved to Colorado. I'm living in my dream house and my dream location. Uh, I have four dogs. I have a huge backyard. Um, and you know, that's not magic. I didn't make magic. I just started by taking these little first steps towards what it was. I picked a goal and I started working my way towards it. Um, And there were plenty, plenty of hiccups in between. Mm. Plenty of things that made it take longer. Plenty of things that set me back a million steps. I got in my own way a bunch of times, but I got here because I just stayed focused. But you can't do that if you're chasing somebody else's goal. You don't have the passion or the energy or the drive to go after somebody else's goal the way you would at your own. Um, And I think that's where a lot of autistics are struggling right now. Absolutely. Yeah, you paved your own meaningful path to your own meaningful, fulfilled, or moving towards fulfillment in your life. I mean, you reached a lot of those goals that you were like, what if I just did that? That was such great testament to the importance of just knowing that the, there were so many small steps that led to these big steps. Is It's like, it really starts with something really as simple as like a to-do list. Like today, I'm going to make this phone call about living in Colorado. And today I'm going to make this phone call about getting a new doctor because I hate that doctor. And you know what I mean? And that's your to-do list for the day. But those little phone calls, those are steps, man. Count them. That's the beginning. 
right? Is like, if I want to get from A to B, I have to do the steps in between. Right? Yep. And so you have to start at A and their steps are little and they seem silly and you don't give yourself credit for them, but they're there and you have to take them. So if you can make a to-do list with three items on it that will get you closer to your goal and the next day you do those three things, you've taken three giant steps. They're bigger than you think, right? You didn't yeah. not only made a list, but then you got through your list and you did those things. And now that starts you like in, in a small success, right? You have a tiny, tiny success, but you build on that little success instead of trying to take a big chunk, right? Screwing up and then feeling really defeated and like you don't want to keep going. Yeah, and you just stop doing it. Yeah, this like think about even three those three to-do list items spread across every single day of a week. By the end of the week, you've checked off 21 things that are moving toward closer toward your goal. It just, it's that. And then once you get you know you get excited and you get on the trail you know you're on the journey with it you're, here you are you're on this big adventure and you're you get on it when because when things start to go in that direction that you want them to go and it's encouraging and so you want to keep going um but many of us never get to that first step a lot of us struggle with like executive functioning and that can keep you away from your first step mm-hmm. um you know and and something like that and so we have to think about the ways that even our diagnosis can impact something as simple as a to-do list and how do we get around that how do we make another way another kind of list or another reminder or some other way to be taking those first steps Um, but you know we have to think about how our own challenges might get in the way of that but how not to let that stop the momentum right I have a like the number one thing that a lot of my clients and I come across is this executive functioning thing of like Yes, I want to uh, start, like maybe I want to apply for online classes for college next semester or keep my room organized or start doing the dishes every every other day. Like what is like that first step of doing it? Like we're, we're very good at like pointing out a, maybe a to-do list app or maybe getting it on paper to get you away from the phone, but just like doing it is that first step is the toughest thing. So what are some things you, yeah. I mean, I think there are a couple of little things that I use for that. I will say that it gets easier. I know everybody says that it gets easier as you do it, A, because it becomes a habit, but you also like retrain your brain how to communicate about those things. So it gets easier to make those to-do lists and, and you kind of get to know your executive functions because you know they're there. Like that's the first step I think is acknowledgement. Like, okay, I have executive functioning issues and it's really hard for me to have step one. Yeah. I had all the steps in front of me. I could do this thing, right? right? But if you can admit that to yourself, right? That's really the beginning because some people just won't even admit that and they just, you know, admit that they need the help, right? Yeah. But I think that's the beginning. Okay. But after you've done that, there have been a couple of things. So I don't, ha- I don't happen to struggle with executive functioning very much. Though lately, with the pandemic and all of that stuff, I've been struggling like nobody's business. Um, but it's not something I usually struggle with, right? That's not in my piece of autism. But I do struggle with uh, autistic inertia, which I think a lot of people with executive functioning issues really struggle with a lot. A lot more without executive function. Yeah, tell me more about that. Um, and that's, I think, the piece of that step one is you're like kind of in inertia. Like the step one is the hardest because if there's ten steps, you have nine more to go. If you were at step eight, you'd only have two more to go, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really daunting to look at it. It's like being at the bottom of a mountain you have to hike, right? Yep. And that first step of like, oh my God, there's eighty million more to go is so um, just daunting. 
right? So it's yeah. such a big thing to look at. And I think that's the big mistake. That I think is what creates our inertia um, because we're all really good at looking at the big picture and like seeing where the pattern is going to take us and all that stuff. Sure. Um, but that's the trick. You can't, right? So yeah. um, I say for somebody who really struggles with executive functioning and you've admitted it to yourself that you this is just <laughs> not your jam, right? Um, find a buddy. I think that's a great, great, great thing to do. First of all, that buddy will keep you, you know, you can use it as an accountability system, like checking in and saying, yes, I did my to-do list today. No, I didn't or whatever. Um, And that buddy can be anybody. It can be a family member. It can be a friend. It can be a teacher. It can be whomever you um, trust to be somebody who's more reliable than you are, right? Mm -hmm. That's what you want. You want somebody who who can do you better. Um, So I look at people that I am like, you know what? when I look at their workload or I look at their life and I, I want to emulate kind of their style, that's somebody I want to choose as a buddy. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's a great way to do it. Cause if you're just like, if you're sitting there on the couch and you're like, I know I have these eight things to do, but I don't even know how to start. That's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. Call your buddy or text your buddy or messenger your buddy and say exactly that I'm on the couch and I know I need to get up, <laughs> but I don't know what to do first. Right. And yeah. so if, reaching out to your buddy becomes step one, guess what? Step one's over, right? And that's like, that's the trick, right? Now you're ready on step two. So that's great. And then if you have a buddy, your buddy can help you kind of talk through. I find that that helps a lot, kind of talk through all the things on your list and what order you might want to think about doing them in or which ones maybe should wait till tomorrow because the list is too big maybe or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. It's a great thing to do with a buddy is to talk through that whole process and to make a list. So once you have your to-do list, I think they can also be daunting to look at if you have a to-do list. So what I do on my to-do list is after I have everything on it, because I'm usually doing it on some kind of tech device, right? It's usually on my phone, on a keep note or something like that. Mm-hmm. Then I reorder the list um, and I reorder it specifically from easiest to hardest. Uh-huh. Um, because if you start with your easiest, you can have quick success and get through it and start to gain the momentum that you're looking for. And if yeah. you can quickly get through three things on your to-do list, um, suddenly your to-do list is looking smaller and not quite so scary. And you're feeling a little more productive because you've started the three things. So by the time you get to the hard thing on the list, it's the last thing. There's only one thing left to do. And you know what I mean? That's the way I think is the best way to sort of the whole situation. Some of you may not need a buddy. Some of you might be able to use reminders in your phone um, or other things like that. But I I love the buddy system because I'm somebody who kind of needs to talk out where my brain is at. And I have all these things and I can't, this is what's worrying me about all of them. And I need to kind of talk that through if I'm really stuck. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like the buddy system. Oh, I like that piece of the buddy system too, of like, it's not just an accountability thing, but like knowing that you're not alone in this, um, right. Yeah. To talk through some issues you may be having, or even if you're having like a great day or not the best day. Well, uh, that's the other half of the buddy system is the accountability piece. So after you've done your to-do list, you get to send a really snotty fun post to your buddy and be like, ha ha, I'm done with my to-do list. Right. You get to really celebrate that you made it through and that you made these steps because you get to be really somebody who knows you were struggling this that morning or that evening or whatever you know yeah like hey you know how hard I was I did it right and then you move on it's really it it keeps you going and it keeps you recharged and charged up enough to motivate yourself and not get trapped in the inertia or stuck in the executive functioning mess 
Mm-hmm. And just celebrate, kind of going back to a point you had earlier about celebrate that milestone, even if it is the task mm-hmm. for the day. Yeah. I wanted to ask you to, we talked a good bit about self-advocacy and self-determination, but um, what are some other topics that are also very important to you in your work? My number one hot topic passion right now is quality of life. I think for autistics right now, and so this is hard for me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it a little bit of a lengthy answer because I struggle with this part. Okay, um, yeah, when I started it. advocating, I advocated for everybody. I still, in my heart, advocate for everybody, but what I found out through watching other advocates and myself um, is that if we don't like pick a, a, a peer group within that we want to work with or a focus of what the thing is that we're working on, like I can't tackle employment and healthcare and relationships, and, right? I can't an advocate cover all of those areas. And likewise, I can't have help every single person on the spectrum, right? And so I had to pare down of what I was doing so my focus now is so like it feels so tiny to me um because I used to focus on all of this stuff but I was never getting anywhere with anything because I was too spread out so now I've decided to focus on folks like me who got diagnosed late in life who are surviving but like barely like in that white knuckle kind of way that autistics do when um we just want to get through something but we don't, what we do is we, we lock out our own joy at that point. Um, so I explain it a lot when I do employment training like this, like picture your work week and everything about it is hard. So I usually describe a day first, but I don't think I need to do that for you guys because you guys know kind of how, how many spoons it takes to get ready and how annoying the transportation is and how all of that stuff that is really, really hard for us happens before we even have to get to work, right? So <laughs> I find that when we do that, you know, nine to five, five days a week, our weekends come and there is no spoonage left for anything else. Mm-hmm. We're lucky if we can keep up laundry, make sure we get our prescriptions. I mean, like basic things. Otherwise, the rest of it, we, we usually just want to fall asleep and we don't want to interact with anybody. We don't want to do anything because we're exhausted from the extra work that we have to do uh, in order to mask and also do all of the things that are hard for us that come around with a job. Um, and I think that to me is why we see burnout. I think if you live your life in that loop of just white knuckling it and week to week to week, you're just surviving, you aren't living. You're not having joy. You're not having fun. You don't have the time for your special interests and you become a miserable person and eventually you shut down and then burn out because you can only, it's not sustainable to, to be that way for any long period of time. As a human being, it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when that's why, you know, I think it's part of that cycle. So you can kind of see how the cycle would go in that way. And so what I want is for autistics to understand that they are valuable enough that they deserve more than just surviving, right? You deserve a better quality of life than just proving to the world that you can keep the job and pay your bills. That's, there's more to it than that. And we definitely deserve more than that. And so I'm working on that piece, on on teaching people that they deserve a quality of life and how to work towards thriving at life instead of just surviving at life, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So instead of me staying in New York and being miserable and dealing with all the sensory um, because I knew that there were jobs there and that kind of thing, and I had a network there, I said, you know what, it's worth it. I'm worth enough that I'm going to take the risk that if I move to Colorado, I will still be able to make my work happen because 
I were, I'm worth that. I have that value. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I set that goal. But in before this, and before I really learned to think this way, I thought like a lot of older autistics do. And I think that the world has told me a million times how little value I have, right? I should just be lucky with what I've got and keep, you know, keep going. And I think that's a really sad, but also kind of pathological way to think. It keeps us sick and it keeps us down and it keeps us unhappy um, and sitting in the, the mental health pool curves and all of that stuff. Um, so that's what my passion right now is, is quality of life measures and really quality of life with autistic measures is what I want it to be. Mm. Um, and so that's what I do. That's what I talk about. That's what I write about because I think that's our, our next step. That's how we as autistics, I think, need to level up. Yeah, so when you talk about quality of life measures, is this more of like a qualitative type of thing or are you putting together like both? Oh, absolutely. Because right now, I think the the measures that we're using in research, like that way, quality of life measures, um, they're based on neurotypical brains. So we do quality of life measure that's based on autistic brains. So we definitely need to work on that, right? Because how can you tell me what my quality of life is if you're basing it on your neurology and not mine, right? So we need that quality of life measures that way. But we also need measures in terms of supports and services, right? I like to give yoga as an example, right? Yoga is some, yoga and meditation is something that I have benefited from. I know plenty of autistics that have benefited from it. Yes, it's the new trend and all of that, and it, it's hot and what, but what's interesting about that is as available and as popular as it is to the public, it's really hard to find, you know, a sensory sensitive yoga class or yeah. ones that are offered at a certain time of day, or if they're particularly for autistics, right? Maybe it's an autistic teacher. Well, I can't find any of those things easily, right? They don't exist. Yeah, they don't. Um, and so what I would love is if those things became a reality, those wellness pieces became a reality for autistics to do. I struggled with meditation in the traditional sense. It wasn't until I found a teacher that told me that it was okay for me to move around, that you can meditate in motion, that yeah. you can meditate not sitting down, that you can, it do, you don't have to look like, you know, your legs crossed and your hands in the air, like the picture, yes. right? I needed a teacher that could teach me that, that could work with what my struggles were so that I could still use the tool, if that makes sense. Yeah. I want that to be more available to autistics. And I, I need, part of it is that they need to know that it should be available to them and that it does work for us. It just doesn't work when, when it's made not for us. It doesn't work that way. You have to, of course, kind of compromise and make little changes to make it work for you. Um, and that's allowed. So I didn't know that. That's allowed, right? And so it's stuff like that. And those measures, those supports that I would like to see being available to people, not just what's covered by insurance. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a whole nother conversation too. But yeah, yeah, like that, just that thread of breaking or molding the rules to create your own rules is okay. Like it's allowed. Mm-hmm. It's allowed. And that's, but the crazy thing is that after a lifetime of people telling you it's not allowed, how do you undo that? You have to take the time to undo that. Because basically, if you didn't receive a diagnosis, what you got instead was a lot of criticism, you know? Mm -hmm. So without a diagnosis, you're dramatic, or you're this, or you're that, and you're given other kinds of labels, stubborn, right, manipulative, all these other tags that come because, you know, you don't have the correct diagnosis. And when you look look at it through an autism lens, suddenly it's none of those things, right? And so, you know, part of the work of a late diagnosis is undoing 
the, like the whole message in your head, right? We do a lot of negative self-talk, I think, um, as a group, but the negative self-talk is in our own words. And that's the scary part. The negative self-talk is other people's words and how other people feel about us, and right? Um, and so you have to really unpackage all that before you even understand that you have the value enough to ask for wellness support or quality of life or anything like that, you know? Great. Yeah, exactly. And so would you say you do the most of your, the majority of your work online now, or do you do some in-person types of yeah. things? Yeah. I definitely consider myself a remote worker. I do, as you can all see now that we've all been home, that mm-hmm. Zoom is a nice tool. Yeah. <laughs> and I Zoom meetings with a lot of people. There are sometimes I have to go to places in person or if I'm doing a speaking engagement and stuff like that, but travel is hard. Travel mm-hmm. is a hard thing for me. This is a lot, a lot, a lot of my spoons. So if I don't have to travel in my day, I have extra spoons to do other stuff. Um, and so it makes more sense for me all around to try and do it as much as I can online. It usually is monetarily beneficial for everybody as well, because it's usually low cost. And so I, I do most of it online. I will say that, mm-hmm. especially because a lot of what I do is writing. I don't really even need to be online to do that. So, it, but it's in a own work that I don't need to be in an office for either. Um, I've definitely, in the last year or so, dropped down a lot of the um, boards that I was sitting on and stuff because I didn't want to meetings anymore. I feel like nothing happens in meetings. Um, <laughs> and I'm an action-oriented person. I'm a doer, right? As you can tell, I want everybody to be doing, <laughs> and, you know, starting and moving and going forward. And meetings always feel like, backwards they just feel like nothing happens nobody ever stays on agenda and I never get it done and so I'm excited to have kind of taken that piece out of my life because I feel like I was wasted yeah but what are some um I'll definitely get into this question because I think this will be a good one uh what are some common resources or tools you've turned to or would recommend others to use okay so there are some in I have a couple different wheelhouses about it. There are some books on topics that I would recommend specifically and things like that. But if we're talking about like overall kind of other resources, I want I want autistics like to really think about looking outside the box for supports. I would love it if you guys would check out resources on mindfulness. I think that is extremely helpful, um, especially as someone with interoception. I found it extremely helpful. Yoga and mod, I want to say modified yoga um, because there are things, signals and gins and communications between our brain and our body that we've learned to turn off as adults. Um, and so I had to look for non-traditional triggers for these things. And mindfulness and yoga and meditation helped me find them and helped me figure out what they, I think they're very, very useful. I want to say also, don't be afraid to look at holistic and look at non-traditional um, medications and like that and supplements. Uh, I have happened to think that us, because we have such picky eating habits, struggle a lot with kind of balancing nutrition-wise, vitamins and all of those things. Yeah. And that kind of, I think, impacts our sleep and you know, all part of the same thing. So look into some of that stuff because I think, you know, a lot of it is we can't process a lot of the stuff that's not made organically, I want to say. But if you go back to really kind of stuff, you'll find things that will help you with your stomach and with your sleep and with like that. And because you're not children, you don't need FDA approval. (laughs) So I would say go check out, you know, some of those things also, like don't close your life off 
to those things, really, if you're someone who is diagnosed late in life, these things can make a humongous difference for you. You know, there are general ideas that I would recommend. I'd say if you haven't read memoirs and stuff like that by other autistics, do that. It helps you feel less alone, less isolated. So depending on where you're at in your diagnosis, I would definitely do that. Seek out your fellow autistics. They are your resources. I would love for research to be out there that could tell us all about ourselves, but it doesn't exist. Yeah. And so instead I say your resources, which is, are your peers, is, you know, your other autistics. Don't forget to use them. And you don't even have to be like overly social about it because we don't care. You can just directly ask for the help that you need. You know what I mean? It's because mm. you're talking to one of you. Um, I would say use your resource, those resources. Those are great. Thank you. I'm going to get into, I didn't even know about all of the modified mindfulness and yoga types of practice. It's crazy. Like a lot of it, you have to do you, the, the modified stuff, you know, you choose your modifications, but it's like somebody has to tell you that you can modify it. Like somebody has to give you permission. It feels like that yeah. it's okay to do that. So I'm giving permission. You don't have to do everything exactly the way it's written in the book. You don't have to follow all of those rules. And you can try them. And if they don't work, don't do them again. You know what I mean? Like really experiment with it and use the parts of it that work. And if there are parts of it that don't work for you, use them. You don't have to use all of it, you know? Yeah. You can choose. You hear that, listeners? You have permission. You can do that. Yes, we're giving you permission. Becca gave you permission and I did too. (laughs) And you can give yourself permission. And then, yeah, I want to get into some of your resources because I know you have a lot of great ones. And that kind of goes into because you're creating some and sharing some in the coming months. So uh, I know there's a lot going on right now in the world right now, but there's still a lot of good things coming out of our autism community and from you. So what are you excited about and looking forward to in the coming month? There's so many things that I'm doing and because so much of what I do online goes online, I'm excited that everybody's home and stuck with me. <laughs> Having to listen to, I do, uh, I have a Facebook group called Neurodiversity Newsstand. It started as a book club and it became a, a news group because the books weren't enough for us. We wanted to talk about more stuff. The group of us that kind of began, you know, I started it and I, I kind of knew I had my reason. I asked those people to join the club and it was like, we wanted more. And there were, we, in between chapters, we were talking about the news that was coming out and things like that. So we flipped ourselves um, into a news group and I decided, you know, the couple of rules that were really important to me. First of all, everyone's allowed their opinion. Well, everyone has to respect everybody else's opinion. Like there can't have a news group where you're sharing current events that may very well be things that get people passionate, right? Yeah. Um, and then not let them be passionate in the group. So I, I allow everybody to have their opinion. But what I ask in return is that you don't kind of poo on anybody else's opinion and that you're respectful about mm-hmm. in the conversations. Like I love when discussions happen and people are disagreeing and they're, you know, explaining their points to each other, but that can quickly become name calling, right? Mm-hmm. And so where I draw the line. I am so thrilled to say that I have over 2,200 people this group of autistics, of professionals, of educators, administrators, family members. It's international. And in all the, the three years that I've been running it, I have had to boot an entirety of six people. That's it. Wow. Only six people uh, in all that time. And so I love our group for that. Um, And it's been a great group and it continues to grow. I have a matching group um, because everyone on LinkedIn wanted a group on LinkedIn. So I created Neurodiversity Newsstand there. So whichever your platform of choice is. Um, And again, we just share the news. What's news in neurodiversity is being shown of us, blogs, what you're writing, your memes, 
things, all of that um, related to neurodiversity. Everybody can share what they want. And of the week, I look through all of the posts in both of the groups and I do uh, a summary. I do an, um, a news show, a news book on YouTube called Neurodiversity News and the vlog. Uh, so it's on my YouTube channel. And every Friday afternoon, I sum up the news of the week and I tell everybody what was like the hot news. I share events going on in the community, new books that are out, whatever that may be. And I share all of that stuff uh, on Friday. So for about 20 minutes, I give the summary. So if you're not a reader or if you've had a busy week, you can just uh, catch the YouTube and get a summary of it all. So that's like a big passionate project for me that grew into itself that I'm doing. Um, I also do a monthly newsletter that I would love to have people sign up for. It's a motivational newsletter, a theme for the month, and then I share with you some resources on that topic. So I share kind of tips for trying new things and why trying new things are good for you and um, things like that. Uh, and, and I get once a month. So I would love to have you guys sign up for that. You can also reach out to me from my website. I have a contact page there. And you can also catch any and all of my off my website, as well as some of my writing uh, is on there. And so that's really the best place to look for any resources that I have is just to go straight to my website because I put it all there. So whatever way you want to connect. Great. Yeah, so many great places to reach out to based on people's preferred platforms or all of them. I didn't realize you were also, you had the, you started neurodiversity newsstand in Facebook and then brought it over to LinkedIn. Check that out because I'm in the LinkedIn one. So I'll have to look over that one too. You'll, I think you'll like the, the Facebook group is more active. I think that's just generally the case, LinkedIn yeah. versus Facebook. It just is. I would say so, so it's a group. Um, it's more fast paced. There's a lot more conversation. Cool. But they're both groups. I mean, they, they serve a purpose. Like, you know, on LinkedIn, a lot of the stuff that we end up sharing is business related, mm -hmm. right? Or, or employment, um, more of them. The Facebook group, everyone kind of prefers that. I think it's fun to be in both groups because I'm in both. <laughs> yeah and then to catch it all at the end on the, your youtube channel is so cool too yeah. it's a great way to like reshare information across platforms Keep i have it. fun doing it it's a good one i bet it, yeah it sounds so fun and then you kind of gave a uh the place where people can find you but are there any other spots that you like to hang out that people can get in touch with you uh, I am always on my social media, so if you're following me on Facebook and you to me through my Facebook page, you'll get me. Um, same thing with LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram, YouTube, and then of course, we just want it to be easy. You can eat at info at um, If you don't want to remember the email address, you can go to the website and use the contact page. It goes to the same email address. Got it. Perfect. Yeah, because you may get some responses that way. Our listeners are all over the place too. Some of them like to send out emails, so you may get some. I do. I get them all the time and feel free, you know, if it's a, a quick question about a quick resource and it comes, you know, it's easy for me to come to, I'll, I'll get back to you. Um, what I do like to say is, because I always feel bad about this and I know I'm dealing with fellow autistic. So if you email me, give me like five days to answer you. Um, because I, you know, I'm dealing with other things and I want to get you your answer, but I have other stuff obviously in my inbox and I only have so many spoons. So, um, sometimes it takes me a bit to get back, but I promise you there is not an email that I have not answered yet. So just be patient. It was so great having you on the podcast, Becca. We'll have to talk with you again soon. I'd love to. It was really fun being here. I'm really excited to be able to talk about this stuff. 
All right. Thanks again to Becca for joining us for today's episode. You can check out everything that we talked about in our show notes on the AGU website, which is also linked in the description of the episode of wherever you are listening to this podcast, which leads me to this quick ask. If you found value in this episode and know that others could benefit from listening to this podcast, leave us a rating and review. This really, truly helps others in the autism community and at large find us easier online because people like you are saying things like, wow, this podcast is real. I really enjoyed learning about self-determination and autism in adulthood and so much more. This episode was brought to you by our advocates at Patreon. Become a supporter of future episodes and get early access to our episodes, special podcast Q&As, and so much more. You can go to autismgrownup.com slash supportagu to learn more and help us keep the show running. And again, thank you so much for listening to another episode of the AGU podcast. I look forward to our episode next week and I'll chat with y'all soon.